I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was March 31, 1995, Friday night in News Limited's Kipak Street War Room. As the evening drew on, those present were being kept updated on developments in their secret raid on the Australian Rugby League. With most of Cronulla and Canberra signed and Brisbane scheduled for the morning, all was going according to plan. At some point in the evening, however, came the first sign that they might not have it all their own way, with two brief but ominous words written on the whiteboard. Pack a nose. This is part one of Phillip Street, the eighth chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? G'day, mate. I'm very well. Uh, ready for a big one. There's a, a lot to get through in this chapter. I'm loving this uh, this chapter because we've focused so much on the Super League side. Getting this ARL side is going to be awesome. And I've got to say, the preparation for this, I felt a real odd tinge of pride in Rugby League people. Yeah. Just how they could like gather together for a war. Yeah, know? yeah. We've got a lot to talk about on this, but it's one thing for Super League to have this, you know, carefully calculated plan that went to shit over the course of a weekend. But for the ARL to do so much of this on the fly with seemingly no like foresight or planning, but just to launch this counterattack. Incredible counterattack. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we won't spoil it. We, we'll go through all those developments over the course of the next two weeks. If rugby league people could harness the power of, of siege mentality and put it into a proactive role, <laughs> like it'd be bigger than the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> Before we do get stuck into it, though, I just want to give another plug for a couple of can't-miss rugby league events, both occurring on the 24th of September. You've heard us talk about them already, but uh, at the National Library in Canberra, for any ACT listeners, at 12.30, Dr. Guy Hansen will be giving his talk to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the Raiders' first premiership. Uh, It's called When the Raiders Come to Town. Good news, it's actually going to be live streamed over Facebook. Awesome. So we'll uh, we'll put it up on our Facebook, we'll retweet it. So uh, that's great news for anyone around the rugby league world, you can tune in. Uh, And that same night, of course, the Tom Brock lecture, you can register now at tombrock.com.au. We'll be there. We've already got some reports of some RLD listeners who will be coming along. So uh, I want to do a Roy Simmons and have a beer with each one of you so um, get your tickets now uh, it, it'll be a great night Bram Dabshek talking about the history of the Rugby League Players Association with a panel at the end with Clint Newton and Ian Prendergast from the Players Association awesome again yeah so hope to see you all there uh, and with that let's get into it So in our last chapter we looked at what Super League did this chapter we're looking at the ARL's response and so that started on that Thursday night when they received 
notice of the legal action. And from then on, you know, the battle lines were drawn and the ARL had to come up with their plan of attack. So the first step of that was a legal response, which was to launch a countersuit with the argument that Super League was inducing players to break contracts. So this is the point where Colin Love enters our story. Colin Love at the time uh, had been with the ARL as their lawyer since incorporation in 1983 and a rugby league man through and through. Ultimate old school Sydney solicitor look. Yeah. And my favorite part about Colin Love's role in the rugby league up to this point was, you know, a very serious man, a, you know, highly decorated lawyer. He'd take February off every year to run the World Sevens. That was like his little (laughs) pet event. So cool. Uh, And of course, following the war, he went on to become ARL chairman. So he was the spearhead of the ARL's legal fight. And while we don't have too much to talk about him in this chapter, over the course of the series, you're going to be hearing a lot more about Colin Love and his role in the whole drama. So with that side of it taken care of, it was time to get the real immediate battle together, which was to work out how they were going to stop Super League from taking the game away completely by the end of the weekend. As with everything in this part of the story, getting the truth is very murky and very difficult to ascertain what actually happened. So we know certainly that ARL had been tipped off in some respect that something was coming. So John Quayle's on record later in 1995 saying that they had good intelligence, admitting that they'd been tipped off about the signings at Townsville on the Friday night. Uh, a lot of talk that Gus was the one who had that inside information and was you know, giving them a head start. Other people are saying that Bozo knew as well, but Bob Fulton himself said that the first he found out was on Saturday morning when he opened the paper. Which... <laughs> What's your theory as to why everyone involved in the Super League war has to say that they found out when they read the paper? I think it's the washing uh, hands of the blood. First I heard it, it was April Fool's Day. (laughs) We we should be keeping a tally. If there's anyone listening at home, uh, please let us know what the tally is for the first I heard of it was April Fool's Day. Bozo also, uh, along the way, said that one of the things I found hard to come to grips with were people who were obviously advising both sides. Obviously, we had some inside information, but the other organization would like to think they had theirs too. I don't know where it was coming from. So already we've seen so much skullduggery, so much turn coding, and, and all this inside intrigue. I think at this point, I get the vibe that a lot of people didn't think the ARL had a shot at stopping it. And they're yeah. like, well, I better cover my bases. Mm by uh, being a mole, as it were. But so the ARL got together on the Saturday morning, Saturday, April 1, called an emergency board meeting. That was the famous meeting where Peter Moore turned up to announce to Ken Arthurson with regret that he'd be stepping down from the New South Wales Rugby League. Well, you remember our Archeo History Corner, that was a tragedy. Yeah. Personal tragedy. And we've got an episode uh, on that coming up very soon. So a lot more discussion of that moment and the, you know, 30 years leading up to it. But in the immediate... It was the rest of the board coming together to work out what were their options. And basically their options were not very many without support from the big end of town. And that's where the twin powers of Kerry Packer and Optus came into the fold. So that morning, the two organisations came together and worked out an arrangement of supplying the ARL with some money, which the estimates for how much money that was are all over the place. Uh, But certainly $30 million can be considered the very minimum in this section of the war. The agreement was that two-thirds was to be paid by Optus and one-third by Packer. How do you go to a public company 
and go, well, we're going to look after our shareholders, but let's just take a side in this war and throw in 30 million or so and yeah. see how we go. <laughs> how do you justify that? Like, I, I can see it from the Packer side because he seems to just be operating on his own and that could have been, you know, withdrawn from his bank account, you know. But, yeah, the Packer side I get entirely, yeah, but, but Optus, it's like, yeah. you know, we're just going to have a punt on this uh, civil war in <laughs> rugby league. But that was coming from key executives at Optus saying that it was a bottom line decision. If we don't have rugby league, we don't have Optus vision. Yeah, I get that. But it's like, it wasn't a sure thing. Yeah. The, and all- <laughs> the 30 million wasn't um, no. a guaranteed return. Yeah, you'd think it should be ratified at some like you know board level or something rather than... <laughs> and maybe they did have an emergency meeting, but yeah. uh, it, it seemed to be organized very quickly. And there was a, a lot of speculation as to whether that money was a gift or a loan. And, See what I mean? <laughs> and this quote from John Quayle illustrates that perfectly. We determined in conjunction with Channel 9 and Optus that we'd need money to sign up a number of players. They provided $12 million on Saturday, April 1. By Monday, April 3, we knew that would not be enough, and they increased it to $20 million. The money was given to us on trust. We never signed anything. Incredible. And, and also, so rugby league to have to proudly announce that you didn't sign a contract. <laughs> but how do they not know that 12 million was not going to be enough? You can just like estimate the contracts and add them up with a calculator and work that out, can't you? Yeah, well, all, all that careful planning seemed to go out the window pretty quickly, as we'll see in the part two of this chapter. But that innuendo, was it a gift or a loan? Uh, and all this kind of shady dealings leads to the point that the money saved the ARL in the short term, but was somewhat crippling in the long term. So they had to make a number of concessions uh, as a part of getting this money, with Packer paying less than originally agreed from the current TV rights deal, getting nine approval from any major major changes to you know season format the number of teams etc and effectively from that moment from the moment that they took the money from nine and optus they essentially removed themselves from the bargaining table absolutely and this whole thing about we can't let one man from the media control the game it's like except this one <laughs> let him do it <laughs> And there are a number of attempts at like peace talks and, and trying to come to a compromise throughout 1995. And reading them, it, it was always, you know, Ken Arthurson meeting with Ken Cowley and trying to work it out. And Ken Arthurson just didn't need to be there. Like he had no say in the compromise. Yeah, if it was those two that actually had a say, it would have got worked out. Yeah. But Mike Coleman makes the point in his book that there were two competing philosophies of spending the money, uh, your own money versus someone else's. So news were always thinking about the bottom line, whereas the ARL, it was, you know, playing with someone else's money so they could be a bit more flippant about, you know, 300 grand to this guy, you know, 400 to this guy. Yeah. Um, but you've got to say that sentiment went out the window from the news side very quickly as soon as the ARL started, you know, making severe inroads into what news were trying to do. <laughs> Things escalated. Yeah. But let me ask you this. Did news make a huge boo-boo cherry-picking the top players? Like if they had just said to a club, all right, we want Canterbury, so we're going to sign everybody top to bottom, top 30 players, double your money, you all come over uh, and then cherry pick the mm. ARL size I didn't want. Yeah. That game over would have been. Yeah. It seems. And we, we discussed the faults of the plan at length in the last chapter. And I think that is right up there as one of the key mistakes they made. Like you say, cut off the head and, you know, the body falls over, whatever that expression is. But the point is when you're running a rugby league competition, you need bodies. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. And and I think it comes back to that word we used a lot last week, hubris. The idea that the ARL would just be scared or coward because news had signed up a bunch of their best players. 
Hubris for sure, but I think we've forgotten incompetence here. Mm. We're trying a big rebuild for the first part of this series because he you know, was unfairly maligned a lot of the time, but a couple of huge mistakes. Mm. So now I wanted to spend a bit of time introducing the team. So the money man most keenly involved with the fight at this point in time. And I think the first person we have to mention is the one that is ultimately the key to this whole thing, way more than Kerry Packer. It's Jeff Cousins. Very undermentioned person in this whole war mm. for 25 years. I mean, it's still to this day being framed as Packer vs. Murdoch. Yeah. But Jeff Cousins, who was the boss of Optus Vision, was the key driver not only in the fight, but in jamming the works in any compromise talk throughout 1995. Because it, it was all right for Packer to say, you know, I've spent enough money, let's just work out a deal. He would go on with his many interests. Jeff Cousins, as boss of Optus Vision, didn't have a job without rugby league. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the reason that it got as ugly as it did and the mess kept on going and took, you know, years to resolve is because of Jeff Cousins' determination that there would be an ARL so he'd have products for his TV network. And I say it every episode, but for God's sakes, all this over Optus Vision. And this this is potentially the most regrettable thing about the whole thing is that Optus Vision effectively didn't exist at this point. Jeff Cousins, it was literally his first day on the job when Super League <laughs> erupted. you got to feel sorry for the yeah. bloke. <laughs> so he'd been working in America he came back to take the Optus job with the understanding that the pay TV rights to rugby league in Australia had been sewn up long ago and he'd be stepping into a cruisy job with you know rugby league in place. I ended up having to start two days early because of what had happened over the April Fool's Day weekend. <laughs> I do feel pride in the fact that Rugby league's so important to the people. You know, it, it makes or breaks pay TV companies. It's, yeah. As much as it gets ridiculed for off-field stuff, still means a lot. Mm. I've got a lot of criticism to deliver to Jeff Cousins in this segment, but I've I got to say, I, you have to admire how enthusiastically he threw himself into the fight. Like, from day one, he basically didn't leave the office at Phillips Street for the better part of two weeks. There's a lot of guys in this episode that just love a fight. Yeah. I can't relate to that. <laughs> But interestingly enough, I said that Jeff Cousins is, you know, more central to this story than Kerry Packer. And at this point in time, Kerry Packer was fully willing to throw in the towel. According to one person, as they were gathered in his offices on April Fool's Day to work out what they were going to do, Kerry Packer allegedly said, you'll never beat Rupert, we might as well give up now, and was willing to step away from the whole situation. God, I wish that happened. But of course, Optus weren't willing to make that same concession. So an agreement was arranged. That's why that two-thirds versus one-third situation came in. That was the only way that Packer was going to agree to fund this war and, and go along with it. So with that sorted, the battle was on. And as I said, Jeff Cousins was a very enthusiastic fighter in all of this and got caught up in the, the PR side of it very quickly as well and sold himself and, and the fight as some kind of moral crusade. Well, he did well on that PR front because <laughs> he's lasted 30 years with that mm, reputation. Yeah, and it was talked about a lot by the people around him, the people at Optus and the ARL, selling him as some heroic figure. This was Tom Barnett, the Optus executive. He believed in what he was doing. He believed sport must be run by the people for the people, not by a corporation. I know it sounds like just another pitch from an old ad man, but he honestly believed it. He said, this is wrong. This can't happen. And he wasn't prepared to walk away. Not ever. Also, I'll get the rights for my company. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Phil Gould in his book said, we met the gun who turned out to be a cannon, Jeff Cousins. And Arco himself had this to say, at the heart of their operation was a very cool customer indeed in Jeff Cousins, one of the unsung heroes of this whole story. Cousins never flinched in his support for the ARL. Through that time, he demonstrated to me that he is one of the most highly principled people I've ever met. When he said he was going to do something, he did it. Yeah. This rhetoric just keeps on getting spilled by anyone on the ARL side. And it's it's hard to see how no one saw it, even in the aftermath, as him kind of getting in the way of peace. And so the, the final blow was late in 1995 when Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Packer struck the deal that Channel 9 would have the free-to-air rights for Super League. That was viewed as them essentially getting that compromise and ending the war. So they both met in Rupert Murdoch's London office and discussed a situation where they would put an end to it all. So it didn't just include Rugby League. There was an agreement that Channel 9 would have access to Fox TV and 20th Century Fox movies. Rupert Murdoch was going to sell his share of Channel 7 to get out of the way there and get into Fairfax. It's mind-blowing how how little they cared about rugby league. It's just another little piece of programming. The most striking thing about doing this research was you get any book about Rupert Murdoch, get any book about Kerry Packer, rugby league is a footnote at best. And actually, this whole exercise... Just confirms how small the sport is yeah. <laughs> when it's compared to like Married with Children reruns yeah. part of a package, you know. Like. And Rupert Murdoch probably had another half dozen acquisitions on the go at the very same time. Oh, definitely. So that attempt at a compromise was struck down by Jeff Cousins, leading to the the fallout between Murdoch and Packer, and Murdoch calling Packer a Welsher. Uh, only for them to, of course, get into bed again 12 months later. I would love to hear any listener feedback on who had Optus Vision as a subscription. Mm. Um, I, I know a couple of mates that had it. Yeah. And I mean, pay TV was so like primitive then in Australia on, on you know, both sides. What about Galaxy? <laughs> <laughs> so back to Packer. In our halftime score episode, I mentioned that the February meeting was Packer's last active involvement in the war which seems a bit incongruous with what we've been talking about tonight and the fact that he's put in all this money and he has an interest. So while he is involved in that sense, when I say it was his last active involvement in February, he was never seen at Phillips Street that week. His interest in the fight was minimal. Yeah, but he's in that position where he could just you know, get the phone call, what's happening. Yeah, and so what he did was to send in his son, uh, just as Rupert did, and James Packer you know, threw himself in wholeheartedly, was doing a lot of recruiting, added that, you know, credibility that Lachlan Murdoch was doing on the other side. If you had James Packer calling you up and saying, I've got a contract for you, well, there's a fair chance that you're going to believe that there's going to be some money there. I think the Suns, it seems, they were young men at that time, you know, they were probably enamored with footballers themselves. Yeah. They're in the popular nightclub scene as well. Yeah, well, I mean, Packer at that stage was living in a in a unit in Bondi that he was uh, sharing with David Gingell, best friends at that point. And players were coming over to his unit on the Sunday Arvo and he was, you know, doing negotiations in his pyjama shorts. <laughs> And he was on the eSport as well. So he did have an interest in rugby league. Yeah. But in the James Packer book, the chapter on Super League is called The Blooding. 
And that gives you a sense of, of what this period was to James Packer. It was almost like he was sent in as a work experience assignment or something to prove he could handle himself. It's kind of, I've talked about a tough work experience assignment, but it's it's kind of sad, isn't it? That Like, you know, just go in there and get a bit of experience in this little Mickey Mouse war. Yeah. Meanwhile, the game's destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> and as important as James Packer was to rugby league history just for this moment it's effectively a couple of weeks out of his life yeah yeah. it all happened so quick Mm. but one of the interesting things is one of the reasons that he was getting involved and kerry wasn't was a generational thing where kerry packer didn't really have his heart in pay tv like he loved channel nine yeah and and nothing was ever gonna you know displace that in his heart so i just i don't think he had the enthusiasm for the fight whereas james packer was younger he could see pay tv as the future one tell <laughs> so we'll be hearing more about uh packer's efforts in the recruitment uh in part two of this chapter uh, i'm going to introduce another interesting very key man to this story which is former alp politician graham richardson Richo, in inverted commas. Uh, so for our international listeners, he's a very uh, Machiavellian, I guess, is the, the word that comes to mind. So he was a Labor minister for, for many years, but did his best work in the shadows, known as the fixer. Ultimate fixer. He, he was the, the guy getting the numbers and, you know, at the heart of any, you know, leadership spill or, you know, backroom deal, all, all the rest of it. You know what's amazing about rugby league? There's there's like a Venn diagram of four things. You've got horse racing, labor politics, organized crime, and rugby league, and they all have a little crossover. <laughs> Always have. And you might be thinking, why? what does Graham Richardson have to do with anything? And he'd actually left politics 10 months to, before and was on the payroll of Kerry Packer. That's very good for democracy. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it's quite funny, actually. The connection between Richardson and Packer uh, seems to have begun in, in the mid-'80s. So Richardson had become friends with Renee Rifkin, which uh, I, I decided not to go down the, the rabbit hole of, of researching this part because I decided ultimately that despite his uh, you know Nissan Sevens connection, there's just not really enough rugby league in Renee Rifkin's story. <laughs> Uh, but through that world, he became introduced to Packer and Richardson really enjoyed influence, exerting it, being close to power. I would describe him as an action junkie. Yeah, yeah. So it was actually in part this connection to Packer that brought about the downfall of Bob Hawke as Prime Minister. So Richardson uh, had missed out on the transport and communications portfolio, which in politics was known as the Ministry for Mates because of its you know connections with big business and because he missed out on this and the reason he missed out was in rugby league terms hawk thought it it wouldn't be a good look (laughs) uh richardson instantly switched his allegiance to keating and you know worked on getting the numbers to get him installed as prime minister and so he was rewarded for his efforts by getting that portfolio the ministry for mates uh, and in the process he earned another nickname which was minister for channel nine <laughs> but he didn't last in that role for too long because he had to resign after allegations that he was improperly using his influence when i think of richardson he's had a lot of health issues in recent years mm. which i'm always sad to read about but I just think of like Chinese restaurants, Sussex Street, that type of guy that yeah. you know, may or may not visit a knock shop from time to time. You know. Oh. <laughs> Again, we don't want to get in the waters of defamation, but if if you look at uh, you know some some online articles about Richardson, uh, you can join the dots there. Um, 
so that, that still doesn't answer the question, how did Richardson get involved? Well, I mentioned that he'd been on Packer's books since he left politics in 1994. So his official title was Special Commentator on Channel 9, but he also operated as an advisor to Packer. And Packer basically told him on April 1, why don't you get down to the ARL and give them a hand? And so that, Australian, isn't it? And, and that was all it took. Uh, but he, he did have rugby league bona fides, like a lifelong rugby league man, uh, St. George fan. He actually worked the bar at the Royal Hotel in Carlton in the 60s. So got to know a lot of the uh, St. George players there. Uh, has some wild stories about, you know, Langland's raper Smith et al. on the piss, <laughs> you know, after closing time there. He's really lived some sort of life, Graham Richardson. Mm. But I've got to say, there's not a better person to put into this war. This is the sort of guy that Super League needed. Yeah, yeah. This quote uh, by Richardson gives you an example of what he was there to do and how effective he was at it. First up, I went to a board meeting of the loyal clubs. Then I went into an office and tried to work out a rough budget for how we were going to have to pay the players to stay. I must say those first sums ended up being pretty accurate. We made some mistakes. Some players got too little and some too much. But you have to expect that. We were dealing on the run. Do they have any Tony Chumavave incidents? <laughs> uh, there's, there's a few that we'll get to. Um, but yeah, so in addition to having those political skills that you needed, he was also made for a fight. Loves it. And he actually had this to say about it. It was a lot more like politics than football, driving around, talking to people, going to dinner and having drinks afterwards, trying to cement relationships. I remember thinking at one stage, this is exactly the same as what I was doing before. Exactly. But he said that, the key difference was that in politics, there weren't any surprises as to which way the vote was going to go because yeah, yeah. you knew up front who was, you know, who was stabbing who. I've always hated politics just because of the psychopaths that get into it, right? But I do admire their ability to compartmentalize their treachery. Mm. And it's all, all that's part of the game sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of the issue with Richardson and all that is, again, it's a guy who... This whole war that, you know, upended lives and destabilized the game for, for decades was just a game to him. Absolutely. It's just these guys that just want an expense account for yeah. a, a restaurant. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he just got out of politics. You could see that maybe something was missing in his life, you know, and suddenly this comes along 10 months later. Yeah, and he's revived back in and the game. back in his element. But to show how much this guy's involved in everything, the Gordon Wood, Carolyn Byrne tragedy of 1995, his name comes up in that. Mm -hmm. It's like Gordon Wood claimed that Renee Rivkin had him driving Graham Richardson around. And he goes to the police. Well, I was meeting Peter Moore on uh, June 12th, I think it was. Yeah. I mean, he's in everything but yeah. a shit sandwich. <laughs> It'd be in that if you like bread. <laughs> and, and so people on the ARL side will, will talk about how good he was and how important it was having him there. But same thing. He was so committed, so enthusiastic, so on the side of good and right and you know, the ARL's eternal right to run the game and, you know, save it from big business and people about money. As soon as Packer told him that they weren't fighting anymore, he was never seen again. Yeah, yeah. You know? Ultimate mercenary. Yeah. You say a mercenary. I like this quote. This is from a Sydney Morning Herald article in 2009. This was a, a politician who went unnamed talking about him. Once there was a genuine labor heart in there, but the Richardson of now, it's just about access and the perception that he's got access and continuing to collect his retainers and success fees. Well, I heard that said about him before. Mm. And another person said that, you know, in that same article talking about what a fall he'd had from the height of his influence where, you know, he was advising Kerry Packer and, you know, now he was advising some guys who want some land rezoned on the western outskirts of Sydney. <laughs> 
zoning has got to be the worst thing <laughs> in politics. So this gives you an idea of the the power behind the ARL, but I want to spend a bit of time talking about the power we know of the ARL, Ken Arthurson and John Quayle. You can see in Ken Arthurson's book, which is, you know, I mentioned in our Arco History Corner, essential reading in so many ways, just the open wound he was mm. at the end of this fight. And in this period in particular, the toll it took on both of them where, you know, they were not sleeping for, you know, weeks on end. They weren't young men either. No. It's amazing he's still kicking well. Yeah. Um, Ken Arthurson at least managed to retain his humour. So soon after the, the fight started with, you know, press assembled outside Phillips Street, he, you know, addressed them and said, gentlemen, I'm that bloody busy. I'm surprised they don't stick a broom on my back and get me to sweep George Street on the way in. <laughs> Uh, John Quayle, on the other hand, who always seems to be a bit more dour and a bit more, you know, inward looking. Is he an uptight man, John Quayle? He, se he seems very uptight. Yeah. Um, Tough guys, for sure. Yeah. So he, he tried to, you know, escape the stress and the pressure by having a weekly tennis game with Ron Coote playing in a comp at White City. I try to get in a running coot at least once a week. <laughs> Minimum. Uh, and the deal was that any mention of Super League and he'd, you know, take his racket and go home. Isn't that so beautiful? Yeah. It's just so human. Mm. <laughs> he just needs that one hour to focus on something else. Yeah, exactly. Garbage. And in the midst of all this, they managed to make it all the way to the final. <laughs> That was when Ron Coop had his uh, McDonald's empire, right? Yeah, I think he's still got that empire. Yeah, well. Know. Yeah. yeah, I actually saw a quote with him where he said something like, you know, I've got just as many mates from McDonald's as I do from rugby league. So <laughs> one of the genuine success stories of uh, post-playing careers. But on Arco and Quayle, they both talk so much about how much they hate the corporate world. You know, so th this was Quayle talking about corporate culture. The thing I learned through all of this is that the corporate world is an evil world. What we went through isn't about sport and isn't about the individual. The people behind all this didn't give a damn about the individual. All they cared about was the profits. Ken Arthurson, you know, talking about the value of the contract and, you know, how betrayed he felt by various people throughout... The more we go through this, the more I feel really sorry for both of them. They're just gentlemen that, that were out of their depth in shark-infested waters. Yeah, and and there is something truly endearing and truly tragic about it that at heart both of these guys wanted to operate in the world of Jersey Flag and Harold Matthews where it was just about putting on a game of footy and, you know, getting together afterwards and talking about footy and, you know, and that was all that came into it. So I, I do sympathise but at the same point, you can't stop progress. You can't stop progress. And they were, you know, key men responsible for getting rugby league into the modern age. And, you know, they were happy, you know, taking the corporate dollar from Rothmans. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you can't have both ways. Yeah. So you, you can't celebrate it in the good times. And then as soon as it turns to shit, you know, talk about how you wish it was back to chook raffles. And... <laughs> but it's very sad because it's evident. Yeah. How different their mindset was to what was needed. Yeah. But I really do sympathise and I can understand people who are like, Super League has merits, but I can't stomach the idea of it being run by News Limited. Yeah, for sure. Because you want people that their number one interest is rugby league. But I guess the point is that at this point in time, you weren't going to have that whatever side of the fence you sat on. And I think we've talked about how Arthurson felt about this you know, this event enough in our Arco History Corner. So I wanted to spend just a bit more time on Quayle. And 
One of the saddest things for me was reading his financial report in the 1996 annual report. Tragic. Like We, we talked about how much pride he took in those cash reserves uh, in, in the years leading <laughs> up to so Super League. Um, this is what he had to say in 1996. You will note that this year the New South Wales Rugby League will record a loss of $9,711,641, a figure which I do not enjoy presenting, particularly in the light of the substantial profits we have generated in the past. This loss is principally caused by the immortalization of the player loyalty contracts, the guarantees given to our elite players, and the extensive legal costs we've incurred. And even more sad for Quayle is that from literally day one, uh, going back to you know the November meeting to the February meeting, it was clear that any compromise, any deal between the ARL and Super League would result in John Quayle not having a place in the administration. Awful. And th there's a, a lot of reasons for that. One of them was that throughout the, the double act of Arco and Quayle, he had to be the attack dog. It was kind of a good cop, bad cop thing they had going. Say that in front of my chairman. <laughs> and particularly with the Brisbane side, a lot of tension. And I, I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, some maybe flaws in Quayle's character or in, inability to get beyond his, you know, kind of pig-headed tendencies. Well, it's like you said. I mean, in rugby league, all those men have figuratively and literally put each other's noses out of yeah. joint. <laughs> you can't escape it. Yeah. But like from the earliest days of Super League, all the media reports were that Quayle's head would be offered up on a platter in order to reach a compromise. And uh, there's something beautiful about the way Ken Arthurson talks about John Quayle and, you know, on that very subject. So I'll just read this from Arco's book. Quayle was a wonderful ally and mate through it all. He didn't take a backward step and committed most of the hours of his life at that period to the cause. He was painted as the villain from the other side of the fence and there was talk that any compromise would have to be without Quayle. I made it very clear I would never be in that. Our friendship and working relationship strengthened through those demanding months. We were friends, we trusted each other implicitly, and we were loyal to each other in the game. In 1995 and 1996, our friendship developed new strength, new steel. I'm sure neither of us will ever forget our shared experience. That's just wonderful, isn't it? Mm. And the other thing about Quayle was he was tough enough to take it. Uh, his attitude can be summed up in this quote. I wasn't going to go because someone didn't like me. If I wasn't doing a good job and the board felt I was no longer doing what I was hired to do, fine. But if I was sacked because someone who couldn't look me in the eye felt I had to go, that would be very hard indeed. He's such a tough bloke. <laughs> he would have made a great politician. Yeah. And Graham Richardson actually wanted to get him involved in that level, like back in his days as Minister for Sport, where he got to know Quayle quite well. He was trying to get him involved with the AIS, I think. And There's been two mentions of the, of the AIS in this series. <laughs> it used to be a real big thing. Um, yeah, well, weren't there like um, LucasAid ads or something involving <laughs> the AIS? <laughs> so regardless of their flaws, and you know, we've criticised both men quite a lot, uh, uh, the relationship between the two of them is one of the most genuinely moving aspects of the whole saga. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, less moving is the action they took in opening the doors to the player managers, uh, which was sold at the time as a, a key advantage that the ARL had over Super League. Where do you stand on this? I mean, looking at it at the beginning, I mean, do you want these parasites involved? I would say no, but that turns out it's probably a mistake. It, it was definitely a mistake on the Super League side just because when you have player agents and you're actively shutting them out of negotiations, it makes it very easy to argue that there was duress involved in the signing of the contracts. You're basically telling these 22-year-old kids, don't worry about this guy that 
you are paying money yeah. to advise you and work out deals. Don't worry about him. Sign this deal. That's the part that's crazy, but it's like having them in the room, bumping up prices, stalling. You know, you can see where Super League are coming <laughs> from. And the other stupid thing about Super League not getting the player agents involved is the agents were going to get paid anyway. Like they'd signed deals with their players that regardless of whether they were present in the room, they were going to get their cut of Absolutely, the deal. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So it just comes down to the fact that they thought they were just going to have these, it was obviously duress, right? Mm. Exerting pressure on these players to sign on the dot and what have you. They just thought they were all going to capitulate and there wouldn't be a problem. They yeah. sort it out later. Yeah. That turned out to be incorrect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that was clearly the battle plan. And the, the secrecy we talked about from the Super League was so built in to the plan that people at News Limited headquarters were calling David Smith 007. <laughs> You had to sink the slipper on Smith again. (laughs) So on the other side of things, from the earliest days, the ARL were keeping the player agents informed. And I haven't really been able to establish whether this was part of the plan because they thought it was a smart move or part of the plan because Phil Gould was good mates with Wayne Beavis. And knowing rugby league, I tend to veer towards the latter. Yeah, I think so too. But uh, John Quayle had this to say. I must say, I've got to give a rap to the managers. They played a major role because in many cases, we had to get decisions off them. Phil Gould and Bozo's relationships with player managers was a major key to it because I think they won their confidences as well. Super League ignored the managers. I ask you this, though. Has there ever been a positive story involving a player manager? No, and that goes across <laughs> sports. So it's... <laughs> but uh, this is what gets me. The hypocrisy of the ARL Spruikers throughout all this like Phil Gould said, I rate the loyalty to the Australian Rugby League of Gillis, Beavis and Ayub as a key factor in the ARL signing as many players as it did. Like the loyalty. Oh, yeah. They're just tripling their income with, with such loyalty. As I said, Wayne Beavis is on record saying he wished the war ne- would never end. <laughs> like these guys overnight became millionaires. It was like prohibition for gangsters in America. Yeah. So no one did better out of the whole Super League saga than the player agents. And it was that trio of Wayne Beavis, Sam Ayub, and Steve Gillis who were, you know, right in the thick of the ARL side of things. And it was a shrewd tactic on the league's part because between the three of them, Beavis and Ayub especially, they dominated the Sydney market for player agents. Yeah. But uh, the other issue that Super League had with those three managers in particular was a feeling that they were too close to the ARL. So we mentioned Wayne Beavis's friendship with... Phil Gould and and that you know it was assumed that he was you know best mates with Bozo and and Quayle and Arco as well Beavis said that yes he was you know had a 15-year friendship with Phil Gould but he never met John Quayle before the 1st of April I was very surprised to read that in the preparation it's like I always thought he was in the thick of it yeah he's indicated that he was aloof yeah from the league so when Super League eventually did realize that they couldn't keep leaving the player agents out it was still these three guys that were viewed with suspicion and you know were either shut out of negotiations or have some typically rugby league (laughs) confrontations in the negotiation room so you know Michael O'Connor was uh, having a meeting with Wayne Beavis and a client and you know in the course of that he said Wayne I'm a little uncomfortable with, with you being here in going into his ARL loyalties and, you know, your best mates with this guy and all the rest of it. 
And Beavis replied, I find it offensive that you'd challenge my morals in relation to doing the best I can for my clients. That's what this exercise is about. I get paid off the client. And that's exactly right. Like regardless of who they're dealing with, the more money their client gets, the more money they get. So absolutely. Interesting that Michael O'Connor uh, used kid gloves with Wayne Beavis, but tore strips off a young Steve Press. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a real funny thing about the Super League uh, side of it and how they were talking about these player agents. Like, you know, John Rebo, in admitting that they were wrong to shut the agents out, said, that was one place where we went wrong. The ARL paid off the managers and then, you know, was asked to clarify that and that, you know, the managers say they never got anything but their commission. It turned out that that's what Rebo meant, that they got their commission. Therefore, <laughs> you know, the ARL was paying them off. This is like number three in the in the list of blunders, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it's, it's right up there. So it was a, a, a successful move for the ARL. In the aftermath of the first court victory, John Quayle actually took Wayne Beavis and a few others out to lunch at a Chinese restaurant to celebrate. It seems like the only people that did well out of this are the, uh, are the agents and the restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> but the ARL had a win, but there's always a cost. And they were stuck with a bigger problem long term. Like they've, they've opened the door to these guys. At the time, very little regulation. There was, you know, technically an accreditation process, but it wasn't really that serious. I mean, let's face it, it's not really enforced that seriously you know, 25 years later. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Beavis, Gillis, and Ayub ended up forming a super agency and within a year were representing something like 500 players. <laughs> I mean, think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big advantage for the ARL, having that influence on the players. But even more important was the decision to get Phil Gould and Bob Fulton involved. And again, this was something that would have a cost attached to it. So let's just look at their status in the game in 1995. So Bob Fulton was just about at the top of the tree in terms of influence in the game at that point. The Australian and Manly coach, obviously an immortal, someone who'd won premierships at playing and coaching level. On the radio. Yeah, on the radio as well. Had the game on a string. He's very well politically connected. Mm. Almost underrated in that. I've had a lot of stories about Bozo. Northern Beaches knows a lot of serious men, yeah. that type of thing. Mm. Um, Phil Gould, on the other hand, th this was almost the making of him, I'd argue. He'd already obviously, you know, was rated just about the best coach in the game and as a New South Wales coach, wasn't without his influence. But I think this took him to that bozo level where he hadn't quite reached before the war. Yeah, so at this point, he was beloved. Pre the uh, the public perception of narcissism, the awful commentary, yeah. all that sort of stuff. So I, rem I remember being the biggest fan ever. He's like golden period of origin. Yeah. So Tim Sheen says by 1995, he got to the point where he was picking the New South Wales side just as Bozo was doing for the Australian side. So he had certainly approached that level but now, once brought into the fold, I think it, it was the makings of him as, you know, a kingmaker in the game and also the beginning of the megalomania, which would drive us insane for the next quarter century. I mean, we're very harsh on him in this podcast, have been since day dot, but you cannot deny that he's a very, very shrewd operator. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And genuinely one of the best rugby league thinkers we have you have to have that machiavellian yeah mindset to be a great revolution yeah <laughs> so they were brought into the fold again in a kind of ad hoc way so bozo called up on on april 1 when he found out about super league that morning <laughs> <laughs> after the paper boy had delivered his telly uh he rang up arco and said 
what's doing basically. Uh, and Ken Arthurson said, "Oh, Bozo, you better get down here as soon as you can." Just found out that morning for God's sake. <laughs> Phil Gould, on the other hand, had got advance word about what was happening because on the Friday night uh, you had that Adam Ritson situation playing out. So we've got a whole segment on Ritson in the next segment, but just as a little intro to it, he was playing for Cronulla at the time, was in that meeting where the players were being signed up, but had the foresight to say, my manager's not here, I, I can't sign the contract. Uh, so... Was that because he was 16 years old? Yeah, well? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he rang Steve Gillis in the middle of the night saying, you know, this is what's happening. Gillis the next morning called up Phil Gould and said, what do you know about this? You know, this, you know, Adam Ritson's getting approached by Super League. Phil Gould then let the ARL know that that was happening. So he was keeping the ARL informed. I just don't know how he didn't know from the outset. Rugby League players gossip like um, John Rebo's wife, yeah, according yeah. to John Rebo. Yeah. Um, so Phil Gould definitely knew before that, but it was just the specifics of it. Now he was being more clued in as to exactly what the raid entailed, how they were approaching it. I see. He was at the football on Sunday Arvo at Cogroval watching Canterbury uh, get destroyed on the bell by St. George. Got the call. Uh, he was with Jeff Carr at the time and said to him, you know, oh, I got to go. They need me at Phillips Street. Headed down there and, you know, the situation was underway. We haven't heard much from Jeff Carr in this thus far. We've got a, a, a lot on Jeff Carr in our uh, Save Our Saints episode <laughs> later in the season, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. So for the next week, it was basically Bozo and Gus at Phillip Street doing the recruiting. So John Quayle decided on that, saying that they didn't have the knowledge necessary to do it, to work out the players they needed, to put a figure on it. That's a bit of a worry, but it's actually good foresight, which they could have used in the consolidation of the game mm. that thinking that's actually yeah. quite good management isn't it uh, but i i don't really put any criticism on them for not having that knowledge so john quayle said negotiating a contract is a specialized art i'm not in the business of signing players fulton and gould knew what to do and they were prepared to come in here and do it hour after hour day after day well i find it quite odd that he doesn't know who the best players are but... well yeah but i mean there's more to negotiating contracts than knowing who the players are bottom line is there's not a better one-two punch to sign players no, and exactly. the blues coach and the yeah. strength coach so that's one factor you had your pathway to representative football sitting in front of you you could be playing the rest of the world in a couple yeah, of years yeah. <laughs> You could be playing a small Fijian village. <laughs> so that that can't be overstated how important that was to getting players to sign. And it goes back to rugby league culture. Like this this is a quote from Graham Richardson. You can't send someone in a three-piece suit into a rugby league boardroom and expect them to win over rugby league people. Rugby league people trust people they've seen at the footy. To speak to rugby league people, you have to understand rugby league. It's horses for courses. The fact that he knows that and John Rubo didn't is astounding. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, he's dead right. Yeah. It just makes us look so provincial and <laughs> <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> but the other thing is that these were like 20-year-old kids that weren't going to be impressed by a guy in the suit. That sort of attitude reminds me of Newcastle where it was commonly accepted that you didn't trust people with beards because <laughs> they're trying to hide something. That was People would say that with a straight face and you go, yeah, yeah, I understand, yeah. Don't trust them. Is that why Kirk Reynoldson flamed out at the night so quickly? <laughs> they can't buy a coffee in Melbourne. <laughs> and on top of being the New South Wales and Australian coaches, they also had that inside information. They were current first grade coaches, so they knew every player in the game and they could use that to their advantage. So in Mike Coleman's book, he talks about 
you know, a young player coming in to a meeting with Phil Gould and Gould saying, you know, oh, Darren, you know, uh, how's the leg going? I thought you looked really good, you know, until you get injured. And, you know, this kid just being starstruck and yeah, thinking he's going to be in a blue jersey in 12 months. I can just picture the glee on Gould's face when this opportunity come for him to be mm. the, the kingmaker yeah he's astute enough to defer to bozo too yeah and we, we mentioned them as a double act and they, they operated in their own unique ways and i think they both kind of complemented each other's strengths so phil gould was the shrewd organizer uh involved not just in the recruiting but in also putting together the actual plan of attack you know so he was advising you know james packer david lecky jeff cousins he would was advising them on the way to go about it so the first was to sign as many big players in the game as possible much like the super league strategy but then after that it was to basically go after every level of the game get all the juniors get anyone they could get their hands on to make it so that super league wouldn't have a viable competition Uh, and one person there said that of gold that they've never seen anyone show so much control in a crisis like he didn't get flustered and he ultimately got offered a full-time role, you know, running the ARL's counterattack. Uh, but in the end, said no, I want to, you know, focus on Easts and and the Blues. So he he turned that opportunity down. He's got a lot of the qualities of Richardson, but he's far more shrewd mm. and and uh, understated. Yeah, he would have made a great politician too. I want to ask you this: so just say he does take up that role, he heads the the fight back. He probably steps down as a full-time coach. Maybe you're looking at a situation where in 1999 he becomes boss of the NRL. Do you think it would have worked? I think it would have done a better job than most people did, didn't it? I think so too. It's, But that's not a high bar to jump over. Yeah, yeah. But I think in the end his ego would have mm. brought him down, as with his commentary and, yeah. and what have you, and personal relationships within the game. Mm. But he's a rugby league guy yeah. and he's a smart guy. So mm. I think he would have done a fine job. Yeah, yeah, I, I tend to agree. These days it's passed him by no matter yeah. what MG says or anything. Like yeah, that. without a doubt. Bozo, on the other hand, was more the inspirational leader. So people in, involved in the fight at that time would talk about how positive he was, talking about how we're winning. And, you know, he'd be out in public saying that, you know, it was 100 nil and, you know, the arrow were going to crush the Super League. That's the vibe he had back then. So Paul Broughton said he'd come into the fifth floor of Phillips Street just like he was walking into a dispirited dressing room at halftime in a test match. He would G everyone up, convincing them they could not lose. That you love that. Yeah. And and just known as a, a jovial, laid-back character, a, a good guy to have in the room at, at Phillips Street. Let me ask you this hypothetical. If Super League had gone to Bozo and Gus and said, we'll give you a million dollars a year to come to Super League and be the figureheads or whatever, do you think they would have jumped? No, I don't. Do you? Mm, I don't know. Probably Bozo, definitely no. I think they both genuinely believed in the cause. You know, I don't, I don't have any doubt about that. Yeah, I think you're right. But uh, this isn't really related to anything, but I, I saw it in Roy Masters' book, so I just wanted to include it just to give you, you know, a bit more insight into the way Bob Fulton carried himself. <laughs> He was once introduced to a high-ranking official in the Papua New Guinea government and, perhaps assuming the man only spoke pidgin English, Fulton said to the introducer, have a go at his melon. (laughs) Just the obnoxiousness of uh, rugby league people. (laughs) All that talk of of the great, who I consider a comic genius, Paul Fatty Vorton, all that talk on the footy show in that era of gibberers and... Mm. Your finger on your lip going, blah, 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 that sort of thing. That was all Peter Frolingos's, uh yeah. speak from journo speak and racing speak that Bozo adopted and gave mm. to Fatty. Yeah. 
So basically, Bozo be up there talking like fatty, calling people Neville nobodies and whatever. Yeah. So, so are you, you're saying Peter Falingos is the that's, key to Australian comedy. Th- that's the mail I've got. <laughs> uh, but about their tactics, it was funny how much consideration of the representative teams was a factor right from the start. So Gould said that the first thing they did when they got to Phillips Street on the Sunday Arvo was pick an Australian team and a New South Wales team about the players who were left. God. So they both, you know, assumed that Brisbane were a write-off and probably, you know, Canberra too. They'd heard Cronulla gone and tried to work on, you know, who they had left. So this is the saddest part of the whole war for me as a fan was rep teams. It just... There's always an asterisk there. It's yeah. like, it just sucks. Mm. And the, the amount of players on the ARL side who made their reputations like from that, when you look at that 95 squad, the, the amount of players who never played rep footy again. Yeah, yeah. You know, even someone like John Hopawati, who was, you know, had, had a long career. And f- for all the John Hopawati-ness of it all, you're very damaging player at his best. Yeah, for sure. Um, but that was basically his, his representative career. So I'm sure they're happy that they got a Guernsey, mm. no matter how it came about. But I mean, just cheapen the representative jumpers. Yeah. I mean, that that's without question. And that's something we'll explore in further detail down the track. But it just, it's funny, it shows you where the priorities were as well. Yeah. So on the one hand, it makes sense that you get the best players that you have left. But the fact that they were like sitting there, you know, crafting <laughs> the rep teams to make sure that they'd have an origin series... Bozo and Gus were working that into their pitch as well, saying that, you know, regardless of what happens next year or the year after with Super League, if you sign with Super League, forget about playing rep footy this year. Major uh, carrot and stick. Mm. And they were signing up players whenever, wherever, including, you know, having Jeff Carr collect Nathan Brown from Luke Felsh's 21st birthday <laughs> at St. George League's club, <laughs> driving him to an Italian restaurant at the city where Gould was having dinner and, and getting Brownie to sign an ARL contract. Was that the restaurant Machiavelli's? No, it wasn't. It was called Mario's. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but for all, you know, we talk about their shrewd tactic and acumen, there were some mistakes. So this was... But can we just go back to Luke Felsch's 21st to have yeah. it at the Lee's Club? Like, <laughs> how, how great is that? <laughs> uh, so uh, Luke Felsch and Nathan Brown's teammate in 1995, Gordon Tallis, said that he went into to negotiations with Gould and, you know, was, was asked what he was entitled to. And, you know, he thought that, he should get $150,000 because that's what all the Origin players were getting. And Phil Gould said to George Mamis, Gordon Tallis's agent, he's just a bench player. He can't even get off the bench for his club. Why should we give him Origin money? Uh, and Gordon Tallis said, well, you know, I was 20 years old. Logic would say that if you're in the Origin team at 20, you probably have a decent chance of having a good career and, you know, kind of took offense and they walked out of the room and and that was it. They never had a good relationship since. No. And then Bozo, on the other hand, had to look after his own nest as well. So Scott Fulton got a $100,000 um, <laughs> loyalty contract. Any free lobsters? <laughs> so this all came out of the wash in uh, in September and October as the court case got going. That was when the public and the media really got clued in to the amounts that people were paying and you know seeing like these vastly disparate figures um, you know, based on what players had achieved in the game. So Scott Fulton got paid more than both his manly teammates, Cliff Lyons and Des Hasler. And you could say that, well, you know, the, the age, you know, it makes sense I don't sense think to... we're comparing Scott Fulton to anyone's going to work out accurately. No. You, you need to have a, a non-Fulton yeah, yeah. player compared well, with Cliffy. Well, basically, that's that was the argument. So Paul Kent wrote a, an article about 
Scott Fulton's loyalty payment, which incensed Bozo so much that he rang up Paul Kent to abuse him on the phone from England where he was coaching Australia in the World Cup. (laughs) Uh, And his argument was that how embarrassing would it be if the Australian coach's son signs with Super League? (laughs) (laughs) That's some brilliant rugby league logic. (laughs) I mean, it's logical, but no less egregious for it. That's supposed to like wipe the slate clean. Yeah, yeah. No, of course, but that's sorry. <laughs> um, in, in a similar situation was uh, uh, Max Markson, celebrity agent and noted non-rugby league agent, was in a meeting when he got a call from his old pal, Johnny Raper, who said, quick, Aaron's going down to the ARL. Can you go in there and, you know, represent him? And Max Markson said, well, it's, it's not really what I'd do, John. And Johnny Raper said, come on, mate, you know, do us a favor. Can you do it? So he left his meeting, got in the cab, headed to Phillip Street with Aaron Raper and signed a deal. So with less than a couple of hours work, he, you know, made himself, you know, the equivalent of a year's salary for many people. Jesus. <laughs> but uh, interestingly enough, Scott Sattler was not so lucky. So he said that he got offered, uh, I, th- I think um, his words were, you know, you know, a new fridge was about all I got out of it. Wow. And his thinking was that maybe... People on both sides just assumed because he was John Sattler's son that he wouldn't go to Super League. That's cruel. Mm. You at least want to make some money out of the whole war. Yeah, no. yeah, exactly. Uh, and speaking of making money out of the war, we've got to get to the loyalty payments that were given to Bozo and Gus. This always rubbed me up the wrong way. Just the, the misnomer of loyalty payment. Mm. And so this caused a lot of controversy at the time. The arbitrary distribution of cash which was a very bad look for the ARL who were perpetually battling perceptions of favoritism. I will say this, bad looks in this era weren't that big a deal. No, yeah. You, you did what you have to do. Yeah. The old rebel league adage, all's fair in hate and war. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's where we get to Mal Reilly, who's probably the luckiest bloke in the entire Super League saga. Basically got paid $300,000 for stepping off the plane. So he got a $2.3 million four-year contract with the Knights that included a 300 grand signing bonus and he was actually the first coach to get paid so it was argued by the league that his signature was vital to luring the knights to the ARL and obviously the knights were vital to the ARL but when you read about it it doesn't seem like he was that big an influence on their decision to sign it was chief it was chief and you know he'd only been coaching them for a couple of months and on top of that most of them were signed before he was the only thing about him is he's intimidating. It'd be hard to look him in the eye and say, I'm going to Super League. <laughs> but yeah, everyone knows the story about Chief with the bus. So. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and really, for his part, is aware of how fortunate he was in the whole saga. He said, suddenly, for reasons that had not a single thing to do with me, here I was negotiating a new deal at three times the value of what I'd been on. If there was ever a classic case of a guy being in the right place at the right time, then it was me. Now and then in quieter moments, I would shake my head in disbelief. No wonder he loved coming to Australia yeah. so much. <laughs> so I, I can see the logic, even though in actuality it was misplaced because he wasn't required to get the Knights and they got the Knights before they got him. I can see the logic of, you know, when you're throwing money in all directions anyway, throwing it his way to say, we, we need this team, let's get their coach. Yeah, yeah, it had to make sure the Knights were coming. And I think it's probably because of that that the loyalty payments to Bozo and Gus were sent out. Like, you know, we're giving this bloke money these two have been working around the clock for us. We've got to look after them too. I think they deserved every penny they got. It's just 
don't boast about being well when you're getting handsomely financially rewarded yeah. as well. Yeah. So again, you can't deny that they didn't deserve it and you can't undersell how crucial they were to the ARL's fight back. But it just, it muddies the waters and yeah. you cede the moral high ground as a result of things like this. So everyone's just dining out an Optus Vision shareholders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And at the time, it led to a lot of talk about, you know, why aren't you looking after Wayne Pierce? Why aren't you looking after Peter Louis? You know, what about all these other coaches that are loyal? And, you know, Quayle made a good point. He said that a lot of these coaches don't have deals beyond 1995, and we can't really guarantee money to coaches when we don't know if they're going to have a job, you know. Peter Louis just probably wanted you know, a month's supply of Brill Cream yeah. <laughs> to sign on. They wouldn't even give it to him. And then Quayle said that, oh, you know, you know Malcolm Reilly's deal like also included a you know role with channel nine so that's what it was you know and it's like they might as well have made him the arl's marketing officer for, <laughs> <laughs> for the bona fides of that aspect of the contract i can't think of a worse tv personality <laughs> an indecipherable northern england accent because do you i don't really remember him on tv i don't much, remember him either, no. you know and i think fulton and gould probably there would have been a similar clause in their contracts or maybe it would have just been bumping up their you know rep salaries yeah. So they would have tried to justify it. But the other thing about it is that Gould and Fulton were in no danger of going to Super League at any point. So, you know, it's fine to argue that throwing a truckload of money at Mal really got him to sign and Newcastle to sign. But when everyone in the game knows that these guys are for the ARL, when you just give them, you know, these huge cash incentives, it's kind of like, for what? Yeah, but you want them uh, operating on all cylinders you know, if your generals are taking territories for you, you don't want to cut their rations. Yeah, yeah. But again, we said with the player managers that the steps they took saved the ARL, but also opened the door for a lot of issues. The exact same thing is true of Gould and Fulton and the way they chose to exert their influence throughout 1995 and obviously beyond. So that manifested in a number of ways. One was in team selections with Fulton undermining the selectors of the Australian team leading to Arthur Beetson's resignation as a selector in 1995. Did they repair that fallout? Yeah, and, and it wasn't even a fallout. Mm. In, even in his statement, Beetson wrote uh, an open letter where he... Um, <laughs> disc <laughs> he discussed his reasons for resigning and he said, you know, I played a, a lot with and against Bob Fulton. He's a mate. He's someone I respect. This isn't an attack on Bob Fulton. It's the process and the way this situation was able to play out. So what happened basically was that uh, it was the third test in the Australia-New Zealand series. Wayne Bartram had been the starting hooker. You know, we're talking about players who were fortunate to get their rep careers. That's a, number one. Um, so Wayne Bartram had been starting hooker in the first two tests, was injured for the third test, the selectors chose Aaron Raper, uh, who would be starting that game. Bob Fulton decided that he wanted Jim Sedaris, so he told Don Ferner, who was chairman of selectors, that this is the way he wants to go. Five of the six selectors agreed, but Arthur Beetson decided that he couldn't cop that and chose to resign over it. I really feel sorry for Aaron Raper and his, and his rep career. Mm. I mean, he only got the career because of this war, but I mean, the way he was treated, origin. Yeah, yeah. And he, he was already always going to be up against it like when you're the son of an immortal yeah like it's kind of sad yeah he's he's kind of lost to the game isn't he yeah don't really hear much about him it's also tough for um johnny raper yeah fellow immortal and this guy picks jim sedaris yeah yeah son. yeah and i mean to be fair bozo had been doing this for years it's not like this was a new development because of the super league war but 
at this point in time when you've got this game-wide toxicity and, you know, talk of favoritism as never before, it just makes everything like that much more volatile. Yeah, for sure. And Bateson in his resignation made a good point. He said, they don't need selectors. Why don't they just let him pick the team? And it's like, well, yeah, he was anyway. And he should, for that matter, if you're the coach, you should get the team you want. You know, was, But that went on for decades, yeah. this, this faux selector problem. Mm. <laughs> It, it was almost, it, well, not almost, it, it was basically a gravy train for ex-players to you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. keep them in the fold and, you know. But that was nothing compared to Fulton and Gould's treatment of referees in 1995. And again, this is nothing new. You know, we all know about Bob Fulton and cement trucks. <laughs> We're one year removed from Phil Gould being sent off by Bill Harrigan <laughs> in a game against Cronulla. I always love Bill Harrigan for that. <laughs> so it's not that it was anything new, but again, it's at this point in time when everything's so toxic, it just makes it so much worse. And so in that test series uh, against New Zealand, Bob Fulton came out uh, in the aftermath of the second test, criticizing the referee, Phil Houston. Uh, these are three comments in his rant against him. It was one of the most disgraceful performances of refereeing one side I've seen. He's obviously a second grade referee and that's where he should be. I've spoken to the ARL about him and they've, and they've yet to make a decision, but I wouldn't hold much hope of him having another international. Yeah, that that's megalomania uh, starting to overtake. Yeah, and to their credit, the ARL did stand firm and appointed him uh, referee of the third test, but and, and forced Fulton to apologize and you know have a little mediation session but avoided giving him a $10,000 fine because of a technicality. So because it was an international game, they didn't have jurisdiction to oh, issue a God. fine. But, I mean, disrepute's disrepute, isn't it? Yeah. You know? And so this incident was one of a number of incidents involving Bozo Gus and referees throughout the year. And in this context, it was particularly disgraceful by Gould. So let's talk about that context. So after most of the game's leading referees signed with Super League, the ARL was left with very inexperienced referees and, you know, a real deficit of, you know, ability and experience. And, you know, rather than see that as, you know, the sad cost of the war and as, you know, one of the ARL's biggest allies, something that he should, you know, um, be conscious of, Gould decided his own fortunes were more important. So um, ironically enough, it was a game against Manly where in control was David Jay, who uh, had 17 games experience and both teams took it upon themselves to try to make the most out of that inexperience. So, you know, like laying down in tackles, you know, standing blatantly offside, you know, mouthing off at the referee, like you can imagine Jeff Toovey there in the thick of it. <laughs> and the situation just got out of control. You know, anytime you blow a penalty, they'd be blowing up and, you know, it just got really ugly on the field. And then Phil Gould came on the sideline and, you know, put his hands up, calling Manly to come off the field. One of the most disgraceful things ever in the game. Yeah. You know, luckily that his players had the good sense to not listen to him. But he does that, you know, in the aftermath, you know, is going on about how one-sided the refereeing was and how, you know, the ref got intimidated and, you know, all the rest of it. His post-match comments were this. He was under enormous pressure and he failed. He failed miserably. I'm getting sick of it. You educate people in school and you educate people in football and people have got to be subject to criticism. The referees can't go on treating the underdogs like second-class citizens. Lunacy. And I, I love Norm Tasker's response to this in the Rugby League Week. He said, Gould has spent much of this year trying to save the Australian Rugby League. Episodes like last Sunday serve only to help destroy it. Yep. And it's so true, particularly where... 
the standard of refereeing had become a regular target of the News Limited press. And this was all part of their PR war. So we've, we've actually got a few people asking us if we'll be covering the referee situation, which we absolutely will. So basically, Super League signed up most of the leading referees in the game. They were immediately removed from uh, ARL duties, uh, leaving this gap of experience. So we will be discussing that issue in more depth. But because of this, the News Limited Press had an opportunity to you know, play up on this. So in one stunt, they dressed up Graham Annesley in a Super League referee's uniform and had him ref an under-8s game. <laughs> and then in the aftermath of the Gould influence they called an emergency press conference where Annesley was talking about the crisis in refereeing you know in, in rugby league and so when Bozo and Gus are acting in this way they're actively playing into the hands of News Limited when, when they're you know s- supposed to be crusading so strongly you know against them the old adage of uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. When you already had the best referees leaving, and as we'll get to when we get to the referee segment, refs being treated so poorly and dismissed so easily on the ARL side, it's a wonder more of them didn't switch over yeah. faced with situations it, like this. It really is. So one named official uh, said this. This was about uh, Bozo's comments against Phil Houston. I can't believe his comments. We've got a war going on in the game and here you've got the Australian coach ripping into a bloke who has had the guts to stand out alone with the ARL in a country that's gone to Super League. What he said was bad timing, bad sportsmanship and bloody insulting. They should fine him $10,000. Houston did a solid job and a fair one. If Houston ever needed an excuse to go across and join Super League, Fulton gave it to him last night. And the whole way through, the ARL handled the situation appallingly, fanning those flames of favouritism. They were complete cowards over the Gould affair in particular, not issuing... They find the roosters not Phil Gould over that first incident. It's the moment, one of the major detriments of the game to this day that they let individuals wield so much mm. power when yeah. they don't really have it. It's yeah. just emperor's clothes power. Yeah. And once you've done that, you've emboldened Phil Gould. We'll talk about Phil Gould today and the, the war he's still fighting on this issue. But that same year, later in the year, had a tunnel incident with Kelvin Jeffs at halftime where he was abusing him for his refereeing. Yeah, pig. Um, Eric Cox, the operations manager, filed a report about the incident, which was to be taken to ARL board level. The ARL, you know, stalled, said that, oh, Ken's not going to be at this board meeting, so we're going to have to push it back. You know, John Quayle in the press saying that, essentially saying the story was a bit of a media beat up. They pushed it back. So almost two weeks after the incident, they finally brought it up at board level and decided that Gould didn't have a case to answer for. And then came out and said, all coaches will be reminded of their responsibilities to referees with regards to the future. What does that even mean? They've always treated them appallingly. Mm. And then this was the, maybe not the birth, I guess he always had it in it, but I I mentioned that word emboldened, like Phil Gould suddenly had this free reign to, you know, launch on the pompous tirades he does to this day, you know, the like condescending paternalism where he says things like, you know, Oh, I feel sorry for these referees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this this was what he said in 1995. We've been victimised by the media, Gould protested as he spoke of a bias against his club. Maybe it's because Jamie Packer's a board member at this club. The media has been more inclined to criticise me than praise the team. I can stand the heat, but it's not fair to the club or players. <laughs> so it's... I don't know. I, I got really angry preparing this episode when I was reading all this. Well, he's that type of bloke. Yeah. 
but just the like how could you be so you know so self-centered when you're like actively talking about you know this, this good fight you're fighting let alone like taking the money as well you know like there seems to be no sense of duty to the arl despite all the the loyalty they talked about it's egregious behavior yeah and then you get to see the ego growing yeah and so on that i'll end this part of this chapter with a quote by ian heads which i really like the arl's main men fulton and gould who have both been under heavy pressure during the super league battle have stumbled philip street has responded meekly and fans are wildly unimpressed bob fulton stands in danger of being remembered enduringly but not endearingly if he continues on this path love ian heads so that's the end of part one of this chapter. Next week, we'll be going deep on the madness at Phillips Street after April Fool's Day. So this is the point of the story where the drama really gets going. Uh, so that's going to be one for the ages. Uh, I want to do my book plug, my book plug, and I'm going to mention Good as Gold, Ray Chesterton's uh, biography of Phil Gold. It's a great book. It, it, it really is, uh, especially the... Um, so Phil Gold actually writes some parts and in other parts, Ray Chesterton tells the Phil Gould story. Uh, so it's very slanted. It's very self-serving with an unreliable narrator, but especially for the Super League portion of the book, it's utterly compelling. And for all the time we've spent in the past bagging Phil Gould and, and for all the time we will continue to spend bagging Phil Gould, you can't deny he's one of the great rugby league figures. Yeah, and the game does need a villain. Yeah. Uh, he'll go down as one of the great characters for yeah. sure. I, I think the amount of fingers he's had in the rugby league pie over the years the stamp he's put on the game you know for the last 30 years i mean i'm, I'm kind of quite happy for him to go away now <laughs> but uh like I, I really do think he's one of those names you'll still be hearing about in 100 years he'll never leave the game yeah he loves loves the attention yeah. and power but uh once you do something like the legendary origin coaching impact it's going to stand forever yeah you turned it around. Mm. So yeah, good as gold. Very... <laughs> put, put your back into it. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a very, very interesting read. Uh, so that is this week's show. I, I just want to say uh, we've been overwhelmed with the, the goodwill we've been receiving recently. Um, a, a lot of really nice comments coming in about the show and what we're doing. So really appreciate that. Uh, I do want to uh, make a withdrawal from that goodwill at some point in the near future because i think another research break is not far around the corner we'll see how far we can get but yeah as we've said before we really want to get this story right so yeah and, and uh, lovely write-up in in the telegraph this week nick campton who a uh, friend of the show um had, had some really nice things to say about us early, earlier in the week so thanks for that nick spreading the gospel thank yeah. you very much and please anyone else uh if you could spread the gospel in your own way it would be greatly appreciated uh, we're getting some really good reviews coming through on Apple Podcasts, so keep them coming. Um, tell your friends, tell your family, and uh, above all, thanks for listening. Tell your enemies. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll speak to you next week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 